Welcome to the final chapter of the Halloween series for 2013 of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcasts. Once again, I'm your regular host, Blaine Dollar, and by far the most common guest host, Alexander Case. Hello, everyone. Happy Halloween. <laughs> okay, so in the final episode of our Halloween series, we are talking about the 1982 version of The Thing, not to be confused with either the 2011 version or the 1951 version of The Thing. Yep. Um, this is by far my favorite science fiction horror film of all time. Um, and this is the movie which kind of sold me on John Carpenter as a director in terms of making one of my favorite directors of all time. I can see that. To be perfectly honest, the first time I watched it was a few days ago to prepare this podcast. <laughs> so it's actually going to be, seem a little bit out of sequence when you get to, I believe, the December 17th episode of the X-Files series, where I talk about Ice, yeah. which is an homage to this film. And at that time, I recorded that. I hadn't actually seen this film. This is one of the side effects to doing the X-Files series so far in advance. I recorded the copyright 2015 tag in May of 2013. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to plan ahead. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's unrelated to this podcast, but if an X-Files podcast ever missed the schedule, it's probably because I'm dead. <laughs> I understand being prepared. I basically wrote all of the uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion manga reviews that are going up, like all at one big massive whack, and just so give me several months of manga Mondays. Anyway, so now we should settle in on the thing, which was well respected on a few greatest science fiction film tournament lists, which is why I made the tournament in the first place. As did the 1951 version. Now this 1982 version. In the original brackets, where there were the numbered rankings, came in in 45th place. The 1951 version came in at 103rd place. The 2011 version didn't rank. And then both versions of the thing that made it into the round two were eliminated in round two. So although the 1982 version gave Watchmen a much closer run for its money than the 1951 version gave in its bracket. So actually the, the thing lost in a statistical upset. Going by the initial rankings, the thing would have been expected to beat the Watchmen. The thing got 40% of the vote, Watchmen got 42, so that was pretty tight. Now compare that to the 1951 version that got 10% of the vote when it was up against Terminator 2 Judgment Day with 81% of the vote. Where, of course, the percentages don't add up to 100 because people were allowed to vote for no opinion. So this did quite well on outside lists as well as our own list. And the Internet Movie Database list of the top 250 films of all time and all genres, it came in at 156, at least as of this recording, it's at 156. These things tend to pop up and down a bit. But that's respectably far into the list that it's going to be on that list for quite some time. Not bad. Not a bad showing for a science fiction film on that list. Some of the other films we'll be talking about in the tournament did place higher on that list. I recall correctly. I believe Star Wars yeah. is pretty high on up there. Yes, it is at at the time of this recording, the highest ranking film that we plan to podcast about is actually currently coming in at number six. So and some of the other ones in this series, because that podcast is not going to be part of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament series. Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament movies show up at number eleven. Mm. But yeah, the only other genre films they'll start showing up when we do the fantasy tournament. That's a ways off. As of the time of this recording, the full announcement with details of our television tournament will come tomorrow, at least when you're listening to this. That'll be announced on November 1st, 
But in the meantime, the thing. So again, spoiler warnings if you haven't seen it. We'll do a quick synopsis of it. Um, essentially, it's a research team in Antarctica. One of the things I was really impressed by in terms of the flexibility allowed in the story is that, yes, there is a thing buried in the ice. It's an alien threat. It does come up to attack them. But the focus group that we're seeing is not the group that discovers this beast. It's another group of researchers in the Antarctic who found this thing and know what the dangers are, probably saw it in its natural state, whatever that was. By the time we see them, it looks like there's just, you know, a couple of crazy guys in a helicopter chasing a dog. And they try to gun down the dog. The characters that we follow gun that man down in self-defense because he doesn't seem to care who gets in his way. And it's only later that we discover that dog is not a dog. It is an alien threat. And an interesting little tidbit about this is this is a significant change from the original story. This is based on a story by um, John Campbell, uh, who was, I want to say, at one point editor of Analog Science Fiction magazine. Um, in the original story, the research, the research team, the, the American research team, are the ones who find it in the first place. And the, um, the, the short story actually starts out with a discussion about what debate over whether or not to thaw it out of the ice. And then things go on from there. Um, there's also an interesting little bilingual bonus here, um, if you speak Norwegian. Um, in this scene, um, for the uh, two members of the Norwegian team uh, research outpost who found it in the first place, when they try to um, take out the dog thing, the one with the rifle basically says in Norwegian, it's not a dog, it's an alien, and basically describes what it is and how it spreads in Norwegian. Um, however, he doesn't speak English. Nobody on the American research team speaks Norwegian. And ultimately, this leads to, to, to tragedy. Although I will say, of the two Norwegians who show up here, they kind of come across like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Um, the, they're unable to shoot the dog from a helicopter when, I mean, you, it's not hard to find an animal rights sites footage of people shooting wolves from airplanes and helicopters in Alaska. So it, it's not an impossible feat. In fact, it's quite apparently quite an effective way of shooting wolves. Um, and then um, when they land, when one tries to pull out a grenade to um, take out the dog, um, he pulls the pin, goes back to throw it, the grenade slips out of his hands, and his first instinct isn't to get away from the live grenade. His first instinct is to rummage through the snow to try and find the, the live grenade, which ends exactly as well as you expect. And then the other guy is not a particularly good shot at, at getting the dog, even on a stable pl um, platform on foot, whereas the guy in charge of the U.S. outpost um, managed to get, get him basically right between the eyes in one shot. Yeah, but... See, personally, I didn't have an issue with any of that. Um, as a, I mean, as a non-American, one of the things I've, I've found talking to a lot of Americans is that target practice is much more common in the American culture. And we don't know much about these Norwegians. Like, I mean, I can tell you personally, the first and only time I fired an actual weapon was in my late twenties. So I can, I can buy that these researchers are lousy shots because they, it may not be their weapons. I don't know that they've fired it before. I mean, for something like this, yeah, I I can buy that these people who, generally speaking, were selected for scientific knowledge rather than marksmanship and hunter experience, I can buy that we have wildly varied levels of, of marksmanship abilities. I mean, I'm, I'm not too criticizing about it. I mean, the, the thing uh, of all the bits there which make me kind of roll my eyes, it's less the marksmanship with the rifle and more the bit with the explosive charge because we, we see that they've used the explosive charge before, charges before, later on in the film. I'm getting a little mm -hmm. ahead of us here. But they would have experience to have a certain degree of 
familiarity with safety with explosives. Yeah, I've I've never picked up a grenade in my life, but I wouldn't go digging through the snow to get one after I pulled the pin out. <laughs> that that part is yeah, that part's definitely an issue. But the rest, I guess the rest of that, I can I can easily buy. I think it, I did notice it, but I think I noticed it largely because I'm used to uh, the Hollywood version of marksmanship, where any character you're supposed to like can hit anything from any distance, and any character you're not supposed to like couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Yeah, that's fair. That's I find that is common, or at the very least, keep shooting at their feet. Right? If people are out in open areas, they don't shoot at the wall behind them. They shoot at their feet, because that's the way the special effects are going. They can blow little caps behind them, which means the bullets are coming in at foot level and not at chest level. Until they walk in front of a wall, then they can you know, put their little pop caps in the wall for the special effects there. But in any event, that's just the first, what, five, maybe ten minutes of the film is getting us to that stage where the, the dog is amongst them. And... It takes a while before you even realize the dog is an alien. It's not until after it's spent time with the team and after they've put it in the same pen as the other dogs who are going nowhere close to it, that's when you get the big shock when it branches out and starts attacking them. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get the feeling something's up with the dog earlier on. But yeah, even I didn't expect it to be an alien. I knew the X-Files episode was a riff on it, so I was expecting it to be a carrier and not the creature because that's the way ice played out, and that's definitely not what we have here. Yeah, and also that this scene where when we see the dog transform for the first time, um, and we, we see a thing transform for the first time, it also shows an interesting little trait about this. Though actually, we're, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves first. We go to the outpost first. We go to the Norwegian outpost, um, and we basically see that wherever happened, Norwegians, things went real bad real fast. This is perhaps the most perfect foreshadowing I've ever seen in a movie because basically the state of the Norwegian outpost is the state of the, and ultimately the state of the American outpost at the end of the movie. Everything is torched. Everything is, that there's dead, that there are dead bodies, not quite all over the place, but um, it just, everything, clear. It's, it's clear something went really really bad. Um, probably, like, the most horrific image here is there's a frozen body of a guy who has had his no- neck slit, and throat slit, and who slit his ri- slit his own wrists. Mm-hmm. Which is... And, and the, the, the blood from the wrists has frozen because of how cold it is. Yeah, it was... It was a very effective scene, and that is one thing I'll give John Carpenter. Because the focus team is not the group that found it, and because we haven't seen them every step of the way as they thaw this thing out in whatever form it was, we didn't see the interior of the UFO that it was found in that we later learn it was found in. We are coming in blind and getting the story out of order, which means we're constantly getting pieces of the puzzle for the first hour or so of the movie. But for that first hour or so of the movie, there's very few of those puzzle pieces we can put together, which is not typical at all of Hollywood storytelling, especially big-budget storytelling. So it's, I found it helped contribute to a sense of uneasiness, because you don't really know what's coming when. They're just throwing the normal storytelling tricks on their head. Whereas a lot of horror films, they go to stock and they go to cliché. You know if you're watching a typical horror film with teenagers... Well, you know which one's going to take their shirts off, and you know what they're going to do first. And that's part of my issue I have with a lot of horror films is so much gets telegraphed because they follow the same formula. This did not follow the formulas of the films that came before it. There are some films that seem similar that came after it, but that's because they're making a conscious choice to copy this film. 
and not because it was cliched or unoriginal in any way when this one came out. They did a very nice job of assembling the story structure and figuring out how to give us the clues and when to give us the clues and what images to hit us with and when. When we see that massive chunk of ice with a cavern in between, we know these Norwegians let this thing out. And at the time, we still don't know what this thing is. All we know is it made a couple Norwegians chase a dog, and that's it. It's, yeah, it, it, it's effectively, it's a very effective way of building a mystery without necessarily giving everything away, um, but it, it making you ask a lot of questions. I want to know how things got as bad as they did. Mm-hmm. And even what they're dealing with, because you wouldn't, at, at this point, you see no reason to suspect there's any significant level of threat from any of the people we've seen, apart from the idiot who can't hang on to a grenade. There, there's, there doesn't appear to be a threat, and yet this place is devastated. There is serious trouble here, and they they play it well. And a lot of the reason this works is because of the cast of strong character actors that they have backing it up. I know we haven't really gotten into the casting. We can keep going with the plot, but it's it is a case where we break trust. We learn that this thing is essentially a shapeshifter. That's why it looks like a dog. And given sufficient time, it can mimic anything, including one of the humans in the group. So there's a almost complete loss of trust with someone. If you haven't been side-by-side with them 24-7 since that dog came in, you can't trust them. And for this case, that's pretty much the entire group until they start developing tests. And even those tests come with risks and issues, as we see. This is a movie where it it, it is effective on multiple different types of horror. Um, A while back, I read Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, which is about horror and how it works. He talks about kind of the two different types of horror. There's horror based on the other, the, the this can collect really to sort of body horror stuff, like what we get from H.R. Giger, to grotesque and gruesome horror stuff, like um, some stuff we get with gore effects and slasher movies and that sort of thing. Um, and also talk about horror-related suspense and tension and that sort of thing, these the, the sense of dread. And The Thing is a movie which succeeds heavily on both counts. Um... We when the th- when we see the thing transforming, it is horrific. Um, and this is one of the cases where we don't where the director doesn't keep the monster in total shadow and in the darkness, so we can't see what's going on and can't tell what's going on. We see the monster in horrific detail every time it's transforming, and the effects hold up even in HD now. Um, and it's horrific and disgusting. And I remember for, like, when I first saw this movie, I had to look away during the dog scene and several of the other transformation scenes, because it was just too much for me. It was too intense. Um, but there's also the sense of dread and tension and paranoia related to the fact of we don't know who the thing is. We're pretty sure that um, Kurt Russell's character, McCready, isn't the thing. Um, even But even then, there's a short bit in the movie where we the, the narrative perspective, the audience perspective, steps away from him just long enough that we're now in question. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that would actually... Call that point the start of Act Three. Mm-hmm. Right, your your standard three act structure. Act One ends with the point of no return. Right, in in this film, I'd say that's when they come back from the Norwegians and realize things got very bad very fast. And right, that's around the same time that the thing attacks the other dogs. So that's the point where you know this is out there. We are committed to something. The end of Act Two is the reversal where things are not what you thought they were, or you know you have to realize the goal you're going for is the wrong goal or something along those lines. In this case, I'd say it's that point where you go from rooting for McReady to questioning, is this still McReady? And again, violating, jumping around the timelines, violating Hollywood story structure. When the movie's done, we don't have a clear answer about whether or not the threat is actually gone. There are, by my count, at least four different ways to read the ending. 
Yeah, yeah. Supposedly, the, the canonical interpretation by John Carpenter is at the end of the movie, McCready is definitely human. Um, however, he has gone back and forth as far as whether Childs is. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Childs is one of those guys, again, a strong character actor. And that's what they have. A lot of these guys are largely unknown. Yeah, this is like the third time that um, John Carpenter and Keith and um, Kurt Russell worked together before. Um, the two would first work together when um, Carpenter had done his, done his Elvis biopic, which um, in which Kurt Russell had played... Uh, had played well Elvis, and then they went on to do um, another mo- another um, Carpenter movie that we'll be talking about at a later time, um, Escape from New York, um, with Kurt Russell in the now iconic role of Snake Plissken. Um, and this basically led to a long, successful partnership between the two, um, and then becoming very good friends. Um, Keith David also would end up in a couple, at least one other uh, Carpenter movie, um, They Live, um, I'm not sure how much Keith David had been in before this. I know a lot of these other guys probably got built their reputations pretty much later. Um, we have in this, we have Richard Dysart, we have, um, Wilford Brimley, who is a, um, yeah, is, is a very good in this. Everyone's very, very good in this. Um, so this is, yeah, um, it, it's a, very, it, it's a whole bunch of cast of character actors who probably weren't that big names before this and some which would go on to, to bigger recognition later. Particularly interesting because this film was did not successful financially or critically um, when it came out. Um, even Starlog magazine didn't like it. Um, like, um, there's a quote from IM, um, in the IMDb trivia page in the Starlog magazine review, which is, quote, says, quote, John Carpenter was never meant to direct science fiction horror movies. He's better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings, end quote. Which is unnecessarily harsh, I think. It is. And my understanding is that a lot of the flack this took was because it ramped up the gore and the violence beyond what people were willing to accept. That seems to be the the main complaint against it was too gory. And that alone is what killed it for a lot of people. And I'm not a huge fan of gore, but watching this one, it does get gory, but it never feels out of place. And in this day and age, when we've seen things that go far worse and pointlessly, Far worse, whereas everything here has purpose. It's not an issue. As we were saying, this is a very well-constructed film. It, the Again, the story structure in this is almost impeccable. Yeah. There's a, a couple points that could have been tightened a little bit, but I, even then, those that could be tightened, they would do so now because they don't really have to worry about speed limits of moving the puppeteer creatures when they're CGI. In these days... And the visual effects were groundbreaking. If you watch things in the order they're released chronologically, you can see the step forward that this would have been for a 1982 release. But there are limits to how quickly you can manipulate rubber and wires by remote control and compressed air. So there are some sequences and some shots within the sequences that just last a little bit longer than they strictly needed to. Never tediously, never really turns us off. It's just just enough that there's you know a couple moments that these days would have been added a little bit tighter. Yeah. But honestly, I having rewatched this, like, for, in preparation for this, for this podcast, about three or four times, just on its own, and with the commentaries and making up stuff. Um, and as a side criticism, I'd almost recommend getting the um, DVD release of this over the Blu-ray release, existing Blu-ray release, just because with the Blu-ray release, all of the behind-the-scenes featurettes and stuff are only available in picture-in-picture, picture, which makes no sense. But anyway, that's that's a digression. I would change nothing about this movie. I, I would there's nothing that, that, that 
there's no point where there's dramatic plot holes or anything like that. And actually, I'd say that this film is succeeds where a lot of other horror movies fail, in that this is a horror movie that holds up to re- not only holds up to repeat viewings, but gains from repeat viewings. Because when most other horror movies, when you rewatch it, there is a certain degree of oh, you know where all the scares are. So you're prepared for them. So you, you lose a bit of the dread and the terror and that sort of thing. Mm. With the thing, though, th- there's the sort of mystery side of it that you gain, where you drive out the timetable. When is this character or other, this other character turned to a thing? Um, is this is this guy still human at this point in the movie, or, is, or has he become a thing now? That sort of thing. Um and that aspect of it really makes it benefit from repeat viewings in a way that a lot of other horror movies, even horror movies I, I enjoy immensely, like Alien, doesn't doesn't quite work. Yeah, when, as you said before, from Stephen King's Don Spacar, where there's the two styles of horror, this has enough of the suspension, that, suspense and tension side that it will hold up on repeat viewings, because that doesn't change. Right. If you do the movie well, we are still going to be emotionally invested when we watch it again, regardless of whether or not we know what's coming. Right. This is something that Hitchcock was a master at. This is something a lot of directors could do. A lot of horror degenerates into the shock. And while there are shocks and surprises here, shocks and surprises are the moments that do deteriorate most rapidly on repeat viewings. There's enough of that tension that you're talking about that I suspect even you know when I go back and watch it again, which... I probably will do, which for me is rare for primarily horror films. Then the rest of the film, the suspense, suspense and tension is tight enough and sufficiently well done that even when I know where every shock is and stop reacting to those, I can still enjoy the movie because we have enough of those pieces. Like you said, there's enough ambiguity that we can sit there and look for clues and try to come up with an answer that's not necessarily available. And one thing that's an interesting note is that this film, which is an adaptation in its own right, has basically sparked or spurred another adaptation in short story form. So I mentioned earlier, this is an adaptation of the uh, Joseph, Cam- uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, John Campbell short story, Who Goes There, um, which was published in Astounding. And this was, and this was adapted once before into The Thing for Another World, but this version is probably the closest to the original short story. Uh, it is the closest to the original short story. Um, from there, um, this movie, uh, movie was adapted again to a short story that ran in Clark's World magazine called The Things, which tells the story from the perspective of the alien. And while the short story got nominated for a Hugo, I'm not sure what I think about the story. I don't like it that much because it's a case where I don't want to get in the alien's head. We we lose something from getting into the alien's head and getting its motivations here. We know it's a calculating being, um, much more calculating in certain respects than, say, the alien from Alien is, but by getting too much of its motivations and its intent and what it plans and what it does and why it does what it does, we lose something, I think, in terms of the, the horror side of things. It's interesting from a science fiction perspective, a speculative fiction perspective, and uh, it, it's worth reading the short story at least once, but I wouldn't call it a... Outstand, uh, outstanding piece of horror science fiction, or it doesn't quite work as well as the, the two stories that came before. Um, which is also kind of odd because the thing was not not the John Carpenter's The Thing was not nominated for the uh, Hugo Award when it was eligible, uh, which was 1983 awards. To be fair, though, that was a hell of a year for science fiction movies. Um, 1982 
We had Blade Runner, which we'll be talking about later in the tournament, which made it to the final round. We had Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We had E.T. The Extraterrestrial. We had The Dark Crystal, which, whenever we do the fantasy tournament, will prob- will definitely be in there, and likely will advance. My, my, my little sealed envelope prediction there. And The Road Warrior, which I don't remember is in the, if it's in the tournament or not. I believe all Mad Max movies were in the first round. I don't think any progressed to the second. Ah, so I see that we weren't long last able to get beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, not. <laughs> but in any case, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, to be fair, for the original short story in 1990, the Hugo Awards weren't around in 1938. Um, 38. It might have been eligible for a retro Hugo, but um, based on the, on the schedule for the retro Hugos, I'm not sure which year it would have been of retro Hugos it would have been eligible for. The, the whole rules about that are, are weird. If someone under, if someone's got a someone grocks how the retro Hugo award rules work, please post that in the comment comments. Um it'd be nice to know. Um but it, it's kind of interesting that after this this work of science fiction has got an intense cult following and is an excellent, excellent film and the short story after all this sort of dry spell of lack of recognition and solely building effort, the the part that gets the recognition is the sort of retelling short fiction remake. A remake of an adaptation of an adaptation of a short story. Or a short story adapting a film which adapts a short story. It's very Inception-y. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of play with things. I, did, I found out about that short story too recently to have a chance to read it. My work day got a few hours longer than anticipated, but that happens. I mean, I, this was very impressive film, and they may have taken some liberties with the short story, like you said, changing which group found it. Even if it is the most accurate short story, there are some movies that you see where you watch it and you go, they love the book, but didn't know how to turn prose into a film effectively. And it follows it so closely that it's not engaging as a film. This is not one of those cases. They understand the difference between prose and film. And whatever changes they need to make, they make. I haven't had a chance to read the original short story or the adaptations, but if I hadn't read the credits, I would not have known that this was an adaptation. It felt like a story designed for film, which is something we can't say about all adaptations. Yeah, and I'd definitely say that, and honestly, this, this is a film which, if you consider yourself a fan of science fiction film, you really owe it to yourself to watch at least once. It is... It is really one of the best science fiction films of all time. It deserves its place in this tournament, and I do kind of wish it had beaten Watchmen. As much as I enjoyed Watchmen, The Thing is the better movie. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And even I did enjoy Watchmen, just as I enjoyed the source material. But The Watchmen is one of those adaptations that suffers from trying to take the source material and move it to a different medium without making the changes sufficient and necessary to do so. We'll go into that in more detail when we get to the Watchmen podcast. But that's... That's one of the issues this does not suffer from. I mean, we can look at a, a film on multiple levels. We can look at it as, is this entertaining? We can look at it as, is this intellectually challenging? And we can look at it by saying, did the filmmakers achieve what they wanted to achieve as far as we can tell? Those are the three main questions I ask myself when I watch a film. If I can't come up with a yes for at least one of those, then that's when I really don't enjoy a film. For example, Superman 4 missed all of them. This one... I find it does entertain solely as a film. 
it gives you enough that you can sit down and chew on it and stay with it and think about it and analyze it and come back and try to put it together. Not just with the mystery of who's human, who's not, but you can look at long-term things. I mean, yeah, there's nits you can pick. Would the computer they have at an Antarctic installation in 1982 be able to accurately model the way this thing is going to spread through the worldwide population? No. I do like the fact that they are looking at worldwide populations, and if you look at the time frame, I think it was 400 and some thousand hours, I meant to write it down, it's not entirely short, but when you sit down and crunch the math on how many days that is, you recognize this is a major problem. This is an act now or never kind of problem, because you can't let this thing get out of control. So there are some very good moments. The, the third question, does this hit the marks the filmmakers wanted to hit? Do I get the impression at any point that if they had a limited time and money, they would go back and change what they were doing? Not significantly. I believe that they would use the shooting script that they used. Right? I, I don't see anything that requires change there or feels like it was shortcutted just for time or for budget. I mean, if anything, they were inventing special effects that did not yet exist. And they were doing so well. We talked about Stan Winston before and how... If you're dealing with animatronics, Stan Winston is the name. They were running close to the end of budget and end of time. The guy in charge of the special effects who actually got the credit for it and up hospitalized with exhaustion, and they had Stan Winston step up and fill in for a week. Stan did it the other guy's way because he recognized this is good, this is going to work, and asked to have his name deliberately buried in the credits because he was afraid that for where he was in his career, he'd overshadow the new guy, and the new guy was knocking it out of the park. So there are a couple of moments there where I think, yeah, you know, if they had another month or two, some of the individual monster motions might have been a little bit smoother. There's just some cases where the puppeteering doesn't seem quite as mobile as they seem to be wanting. Not deteriorously so. It's not, nothing stands out. It's not like some, you know, it's not like Congo where they couldn't get the, the gorilla to do sign language. So they just slapped this machine on its wrist that had it speak the lines out loud while a guy waved his hand in the air. Like, it is nowhere close to that level. Right? This is this is something where it's close. I mean, there, there are movies where I can look at it and say, you know, I think the filmmakers would want to scrap the whole thing and restart from scratch, possibly from the, the casting level. This isn't it. I mean, I if I had to guess... I'd say the special effects guy would want another four to six weeks of planning. And that's about it, which, in the grand scheme of things, is really, really minor. So I would say that this does hold up pretty much across the board. It is one of those rare movies where you can sit down, shut your brain off, and enjoy it. And it's one of those movies where you can take copious notes and go back and find more. Yeah, definitely. It also quickly note that some of the bigger, other bigger names this movie who came in, who could have overshadowed things, like, didn't, uh, or, 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 or recognized what was going on and took lead cues from other people. For example, this is the first film of John Carpenter's which he didn't score himself. All of his earlier, earlier films, even some of his later films, were, were scored by him and he, his band. Whereas this one was scored by Ennio Morricone, who, if you're a fan of westerns, you will recognize his music from numerous spaghetti western films, particularly the one starring Clint Eastwood. This score for this movie is completely unlike anything and everything Morricone has ever done, because the score is done less like Morricone's other work and more like John Carpenter's other work, very synth-heavy, very dark, and very foreboding, which works perfectly well with, with this movie. And down to the musical cues, if you've been listening to the other podcasts we've been doing, you know I'm a big fan of Mark Snow's work on the X-Files. And there's a certain set of musical cues that is very creepy and really stands out. And I had always associated it with the X-Files because I'd never heard it anywhere else before. It's in here. The big climax where see the thing 
as big as we ever see it in its full glory, we get exactly that musical cue. It only lasts about 10 to 15 seconds, but it's right here. I mean, I'm now almost done recording the season two of the X-Files podcast. I've recorded 45 of them. But I am seriously tempted to go back and rewatch those first eight to ten episodes and see if that musical cue I've always associated with the X-Files shows up in ice for the first time. It wouldn't surprise me if it did. And if that was introduced to the X-Files as an homage to the thing, that was just kept around because it worked so well for the X-Files. That would be an interesting thing to investigate and find out. Um, but yeah, this is... This is an amazing film. This is, this is again, like I said at the beginning, I'm a bears repeating, this is, in my opinion, the greatest science fiction horror film of all time. And if you like science fiction, like horror, you've got to see this. You've got to see this movie. And actually, if you if your local third-run movie theater, independent movie theater, whatever, is showing it on the big screen, take advantage of the opportunity to go see it, particularly with, I mean, this, this will be going up like the day before Halloween, but if somebody's doing a special Halloween screening of this movie, see it. It's It'll be worth it. Yeah, it will. I would recommend that, too. I am not a big horror fan, as I've said a few times over this. I appreciate the suspense side. I don't truly appreciate the shock side, because I find that does wear very thin, and you don't react on multiple viewings. This is one movie that has strong horror elements that I believe will stand up to multiple viewings. It has that kind of feel. This is as much, you know, shock value as it is suspense. As I said, it, it hits both sides of horror and brings them right through. So the only like real trivia thing or thing that bears mentioning is that there were two alternate endings made for this movie, uh, one for test screenings, one for television screenings. None of them are on the DVD or Blu-rays, and I think you can find the alternate, the TV alternate on YouTube somewhere uh, if you look for it, because that's the one that's most likely to have been preserved by someone's VHS tape. With the theatrical cut, solely for the test screenings, it is an alternate ending where they where we see McCready getting rescued. We don't see Child, we see McCready getting rescued and tested to confirm that he is not, in fact, a thing. This footage was not used in test screenings, it was just that they shot it just in case the original ending didn't test well, and the studio insisted that they go back and change the ending. So they had it, they, didn't, they, they never used it. The other ending, for television, has basically the day after the um the attack and we see a dog sold um walking away from the burning camp at dawn before getting out continuing out the antarctic wilderness and it's it's a, it, as far as endings that are made um tweaks made without the director's consent it's a situation where it makes the movie more bleak i wouldn't insist it's a, it the movie doesn't gain by having the change added but i would say that that ending doesn't hurt it it's one of the things that if you're going to make a change for television that one doesn't really hurt it that much. Yeah, that's... You would lose the ambiguity of whether or not this was a successful attack, but given what we've learned about it, where every piece of a thing can be another thing, and given the amount of times this thing was shot or stabbed or hurt or bled, you kind of have to assume a piece survived. And the worst we can do is delay the inevitable. Or sorry, the best we can do is just delay the inevitable. Because all you got to do is have one spare droplet of blood come out in any of these cabins. I mean, you, you would think a survival instinct of a species like this, when it's alone and in isolation, would be to bite or harm or cut itself as a means of propagation. That seems to be the way this species can run quite easily. The only thing we don't know about that is how territorial they are. So it does have a lot of that delightful ambiguity that I liked from the X-Files, where you don't really know if the threat is eliminated or just kind of shoved over into a corner for a while. Yeah, so that, that pretty much covers all the bases for the thing. Yeah, it does. So, Alex, again, thank you for joining us. And keep an eye on BR42 for the 
the next elements and the next entries in the greatest science fiction film tournament. We haven't quite got the rest of the schedule pinned down for sure, but we have some ideas of where we'd like to go next. While you're hearing this, we're about two-thirds of the way through the Doctor Who's 50 and 50 podcast, which is still running. The X-Files Retrospective podcast is up and running, and if you're a fan of the thing and haven't given the X-Files a shot, do so. You will most likely enjoy both. And that's on Netflix if you want to catch up that way. And of course, we have the Silver Screen Superman running through December. The last three episodes are going to be the November 14th episode about Superman Returns, the December 14th episode about Man of Steel, and we're going to have, by popular demand, an insert on the comic book version of Superman 3, as was planned by Richard Donner, before shifting into big screen Batman next year. And as we said, tomorrow, November 1st, we'll do the first formal announcement of the science fiction TV tournament and what entries are in it and how that tournament is really going to play out in great detail. And that tournament will begin on November 8th. And we may well see a couple other podcast series cropping up in the not-too-distant future as well. All right. So again, Alex, thank you for joining us, and listeners, thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying what you've been hearing, please pop over to iTunes and give us a review, or drop us a line at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Indeed. And you all have a safe and happy Halloween. <laughs>